I can't control God. It's a risk you take, you know? I can't control the wind yeah. or God. So then it's, five seconds then I will call out the tour director, but I'm just saying that if the wind blows, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't control God. Talk to him. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. I haven't done that in a while. No. I almost said the wrong name. This is episode 332. It is a mailbag episode. First, thank you to everybody who's contributed to our GoFundMe campaign. It has ended. It is over. All that's left is for you to send us your addresses if you've donated $100 or more. You won't have to hear any more from us about that. So thank you, and we move on. Now that I don't work Sundays anymore, which is a new life development that's quite exciting, I was able to be available to watch the Grammys, if I so desired. I don't think we had plans to, but then I think we got FOMO from mm-hmm. seeing stuff online, and we don't have cable anymore, so we found a bootleg stream. Um, d- don't commit that to tape. <laughs> we paid for cable for one night to watch the Grammys. Okay. Uh, we'll go with that. If you are a hardcore Swifty, I would just skip ahead, honestly. Yeah. I don't want to put you through it. We've probably lost followers like the last time we talked about Taylor. And I would just feel better if you didn't listen. That said, I would never criticize someone for what they liked. Uh, unless you liked like Nazi stuff. You know what I mean? Okay. Is that the bar? Yeah. It's okay. a fairly low bar. <laughs> Uh, uh, you watch the Grammys at any point in the last decade, decade and a half at this point, and you just know that there's a sense of inevitability of Taylor Swift winning awards. It's fine to an extent, I guess, in that we've conditioned ourselves to accept it. Right. We don't accept it. Accept it. But, you know, it, it's something that's going to happen. It happened again last night. By all accounts... The worst album of her career, according to her fans. <laughs> I've seen so many accounts. I've by... seen so many of her friends. <laughs> I've seen so many of her fans refer to Midnight's as mid, as it not being anywhere near her best work, right. etc. Blah blah blah. I wouldn't know. I don't listen. I've never listened to an album. I just know what I've been inundated with from the radio. That's it. I couldn't tell you what good Swift is versus bad Swift. A lot of the fans said that Midnight's wasn't very good, and they were surprised it won. I think the rest of the world wasn't that surprised that it won. It's just the unprecedented nature of someone winning four Album of the Year awards, and it being for this. Mm -hmm. When far more essential artists haven't even sniffed Album of the Year, never even been nominated. Um, What did she win first? Pop album? Pop Pop vocal prefer I don't know. You know those those awards are strangely yeah. named. And so she cuts up there and she says, "Guess what, guys? Another album's coming." It was, you know, it just felt so sinister and rehearsed. It's like I knew I was going to win this award, so I'm going to let you in on a secret. The secret is a new album. You release an album every year. How is this a secret? We get toward the end of the show. We start to see rumors online that Celine is going to be making an appearance. She's spotted backstage. And where where 
so excited at this point because we keep hearing reports that she's really down bad with this stiff person syndrome disease. We keep seeing tabloid reports from one of her sisters saying that she can barely move, that she's in dire straits, what have you. And so this was great. This was exciting. Coming out to announce album of the year. And I was like, well, I know she's going to win it anyway, but at least there'll be this. Mm-hmm. Celine starts off by telling us that she won this award 27 years ago. And it was such an honor to have two legends presented to her, Diana Ross and Sting. And she's so happy to be here to present this award to somebody else. She announces it. It's Taylor. Continue. Taylor comes up with the entourage with Jack Antonoff and Lana Del Rey. And she does her usual I'm so shocked thing. Apparently Lana Del Rey was just off to the side on the stage. I doubt she, she wanted to be there. And she didn't know that she was going to be there. I don't, I don't know. I guess she was a collaborator on, on one of the songs. So technically, like, she could be there. But Taylor turns around, doesn't even look at Celine, and snatches the award out of her hand and then goes about her business. It was shocking. And we clocked it immediately. Then she gives her speech. She talks about Lana Del Rey being a legacy artist and how amazing she is. Lana has no Grammys, by the way. I'm agnostic. I'm not a Lana fan. I'm not a a detractor. I don't really know her stuff. It was just awkward all around. It was tone deaf. And I think her peers in the audience at this point are incredibly bored. Taylor is going toward her and Celine starts to say something. She grabs the award. Celine is like, uh, hesitating. I don't, uh, what should I stay? Should I go? And then she eventually goes. You have a woman who's come off her sickbed, one of the goats, to present this award. And you don't even acknowledge her. People are like, oh, well, she have, it's because of her, her disease. Every, everybody knows that you shouldn't hug her. She was told oh, not right. to hug that her. She was instructed not to. Was she instructed not to make eye contact? Or acknowledge her in any way? Was she instructed not to mention her when she was speaking or act like a normal human person? The excuses were immediate. And then you got people online calling it the Zapruder film. Like we're looking for something that's not there. Babe, we all clocked it the second it happened. We're not reviewing the tape. They start sending different angles of the drive-by. If you look at it from this angle, you can see that it definitely wasn't her intent. Yeah, we're not doing that. I'm not litigating intent. I don't care about intent. Do you know that thing where you hurt somebody, but you didn't mean to, but the person is still hurt? What then? Well, we don't know if the person was hurt. Right, I'm just saying, I'm pointing out that good intentions does not lead to absolvement. Mm. It's almost irrelevant. In stark contrast... In one of the first awards of the night, Miley Cyrus wins, or was the first award, Mariah Carey is presenting, and Miley goes on and on and on about Mariah. Even backstage, she was going on and on and on about Mariah, compared to this, where there was nothing. And And we know, not more than eight short years ago, she did not like Mariah, because those (laughs) comments are still in print. Right. Taylor's PR team works very quickly, sent out a picture of her and Celine embracing backstage, And then backstage, you see a number of people hugging Celine. Clearly, that wasn't the directive. I guess she's allowed to be hugged. Uh, I don't know where that fake news came from. (laughs) The thing is, fans will interpret it one way. Those of us who are inclined not to love Taylor will interpret it based on our own biases, clearly. And that's how we are interpreting it. 
That is a level of generosity that I do not hold. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about the criticisms we got last time, that some of our critiques were below the belt. Okay. I'm just saying, to me, it confirms something that I've felt. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. I don't know her. It proved to me that she does not belong to the League of Singers, because singers respect singers game recognized game exactly these these young women these young artists these days they don't they just weren't educated properly you know what i mean i don't even know if that's the case writ large it was just a serious failing in this moment well that's true because miley did what needed to be done and probably more the point is it was so simple what needed to be done and it wasn't done and the excuses i don't buy them This idea that she's shocked. Listen, Taylor Swift is perpetually shocked. Mm -hmm. She's shocked at every award that she wins. And this is why it doesn't feel authentic. There's a certain level of inauthenticity watching her. Oh. You win everything. You You win everything. What is surprising? You've won another album of the year. I guess the caveat here is that nobody has ever won four. Okay. That's not what that little performance was on stage. Right. Getting up there... Hugging every single Tom, Dick, and Harry when Celine is right there. I know a lot of the fans are like, well, why do you care? Just don't listen to her if you don't like her. The overexposure is too much. If you are an observer of pop culture, you have to deal with Taylor Swift. Like, there's no getting around it. I'm driving in my car. We pay for Sirius. And I have to be changing stations at least three times every journey. Right. Which is not a major hardship. It's just like, enough. We're ti- you, can't, you can't see why we're tired? This is, of course, in a larger context that Jay-Z referenced directly in his speech, the Dr. Dre Global Impact Award. Let's not even get started on the name of that award. Um, why? It's like the Grammys do not know how to honor black people. So you get an award named after Dr. Dre. Well, they also continually award Dave Chappelle. Two years in a row. Yeah. The broader context is that only three black women have ever won Album of the Year, despite shaping the culture in profound ways throughout the entire rock and roll era. The last black woman to win Album of the Year was Lauryn Hill, richly deserved, in 1999. But you have seminal albums continually ignored. Rihanna's Anti was not even nominated. For me... Anti is one of the most essential albums of the past 15 years, period, by anybody. And then, of course, the Beyonce snubs in a mourning phase by Beck wins over the self-titled. Fine, honestly, self-titled wasn't my favorite. But then you get Adele's 25 over Lemonade. Adele even thought it was ridiculous. How to dismantle an atomic bomb over the emancipation of Mimi. Like a late era inessential U2 album. This is not Joshua Tree we're talking about. This is the era in which Apple was forcing everybody to download U2 albums. You announce the winner and then We Belong Together starts playing. Why should Mariah Carey ever set foot Mm -hmm. at a Grammy Awards ever again? She did this year because she's clearly very pleased with how she looks and wants everybody (laughs) to see. And of course, last year, Harry's House wins over Renaissance. This year, it was SZA's SOS, the most nominated artist, an incredible album. 
Yes, music is subjective. There's no correct answer. We have all read The Death of the Author. We got it. Mm-hmm. Post-structuralism. But it's the, what, are, it's, what are we doing? It's the whiteness of it all. That's, that's what does not feel good about this situation. Yes. The Grammys have been historically conservative. They frequently honor inessential albums by people they deem legacy artists. We're talking, you know, at this point, they're honoring an inessential Taylor Swift album, which I think what they're honoring is the only person left in the industry who sells a massive album commercially. And I think they're honoring her keeping the music industry afloat, basically. Grammy voters said, we didn't vote for Beyonce for album of the year because she's won too much. Why does that line of thinking not apply to Taylor Swift? (laughs) And also who honored her too many times? It was you. Jay-Z stood there and said not to embarrass this young lady, but how can she have the most Grammys and never album of the year? It doesn't make sense. The math is not mathing. Oh, there are too many collaborators. There's always an excuse. We see this in in tennis, people making excuses about why there's no pay equity across the tour. And the, the reasoning always changes. So for Beyonce, it was there were too many samples, too many collaborators. It didn't feel like a work done by a singular artist. Okay, SZA has barely any samples, very few collaborators, very few songwriters. That's not the reason. It's never the reason. I found myself in preparation for this segment googling last night, does Taylor Swift have black friends? Uh, (laughs) Please. And there have been articles written about it. It was actually very interesting to go down that rabbit hole. Oh, There's this entire genre of black Swifties who have had to come to grips with their Swifty fandom. Really? And they've written about it, yeah. And how they feel oppressed in black circles, that they can't reveal that side of themselves to their black families. Oh, well, that's none of my business, <laughs> clearly. I do remember that that phase where she had that like white feminism conference convention, that group of friends like Lena Dunham and that lady who married the Kushner. Um, Plus? Yes, there were a number of white women who would get together and be Taylor's feminist friends. Mm. And she was (laughs) dragged, clowned for that, remember? Because it felt so performative. I think I said to you last night, in the immediate aftermath of watching that whole debacle, was that that stage felt like the shortcomings of white feminism. Mm. (laughs) Can you explain? I Well, no, actually, I'll, I'll take the bait. Okay. It's because it's based, it's a feminism based on personal achievements, not on structural change, right? Correct. One that doesn't take into account the needs of minority women or doesn't center them at all. Like if you get something, you get something, but you know. And Taylor doesn't have to be that. But if you're someone who's so successful, so rich, so famous, you're going to get the criticism and it just comes with the territory. I'm so sorry. If that's like your great hardship in life, then so be it. You can't be out here winning everything, selling out everything, selling everything, making all the money, being that girl, and feel like you're impervious to critique. It just doesn't work. Operating on that elevated level of capitalism, it's impossible. I am very proud that about 10, no, nine years ago on this podcast, we compared pop stars to tennis players. And my 
uh, analog was tailored to Maria Sharapova. <laughs> but the difference is Maria has changed in retirement. So we'll see. We'll see. What was the comparison then? I can't remember because personality-wise, it doesn't seem to fit. No, it was... Well, there was obviously the demographic similarities, but there was basically someone, Maria, was at the time the highest paid woman in tennis, Mm -hmm. not necessarily based on her achievements, but based on who she is and what she can sell. Or her talent. Right. Or her ability. And so to me, the comparison was quite Mm. obvious then. Gotcha. Now that you've refreshed my memory, Mm. five stars. (laughs) Finally, I think... Maybe one of the most rapidly shared photos in the history of the internet was that hug with Celine backstage. (laughs) Every tweet that you saw talking about this issue, it was shared at least 50 times below as like the rebuttal. The irrefutable proof that what you're saying is bullshit. Because look, here's the evidence. Like, do you not have any understanding how the world works? (laughs) I I don't understand. Do you not know that... PR and communications is a thing and it's very sophisticated for an artist of her caliber. Mm. Anyway. One last thing. I I wanted to add something. And this is not about Taylor, so you, you can feel free to listen. But when we were talking about the broader context of who's recognized by the Grammys and in the industry in general, uh, this is, I mean, pop music is something that was created by black people and the many genres we current listen, currently Pretty listen to. every like, genre was created by black people. I mean, American music that's been disseminated across the globe, K-pop, is owes itself to black music, right? And I was thinking about when Jan Venner, or Wenner, the, the founder of Rolling Stone magazine and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, wrote this book, and he excluded black artists as being like, you know, he was writing about the masters of the rock and roll era. And he gave an interview where he said that he didn't find any black artists who basically articulated themselves and thought deeply enough about their craft that they were worthy of inclusion into his book. And it's this larger concept, and you see it in sports as well. And we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. For many years, black men weren't quarterbacks that black athletes were seen as having this innate physical ability rather than intellect. In music, you see this idea that black people create from the soul, right? That there was no intellectualization, that it was just purely God-given. They couldn't help but have rhythm uh, and be able to create these sort of base, guttural, you know, uh, musical expressions that came from somewhere deep that there was no training that there was no real talent or genius behind it and it's essentially the fast twitch muscles of music that oh black people are great athletes only because they've been given these genetic differences from the rest of us not because they work hard but we repeatedly honor white artists who interpret black genres in a way that we feel is elevated the grammys Aside from that, were actually quite entertaining. There was a lot of good stuff. I love that they spread the wealth in the R&B categories. We got, of course, SZA winning a few, Victoria Monet winning Best New Artist. Do you know why it was better for us this year than most other years? Because the Grammys tried to do this thing where they blend the old with the new. 
we're old now and we're <laughs> old enough now where the old is what we grew up with. Sure. Fair enough. So Tracy Chapman, Mariah coming out, Celine coming out, all those things that were mm-hmm. of super interest to us in our youth and gives us that sense of nostalgia now. Right. It, but it was also good. It was. It wasn't Bob Dylan croaking out whatever. It was Tracy Chapman. Right. But I'm sure the old people back then who would have been interested in Bob Dylan were very happy to see Bob Dylan. Okay, I'm not saying it was the best ceremony I've ever seen. I'm just saying there was a lot to to kind of bite into here. Uh, well, I'm just trying to give a theory wow. here. Okay. Just trying to give a theory. Anyway, Miley Cyrus, I was happy that she got her first Grammy for, I think, the biggest song of her career. My favorite Miley song is Malibu. I wish that had been honored mm. back, uh, I don't know, like six, seven years ago. I will always get up for Party in the USA <laughs> as well as The Climb. Oh, oh, we're going old school. But I it, I couldn't help but feel happy for Miley because clearly it was important to her. And that's what's galling about this is that we do this every year, right? We've done almost a segment almost exactly the same when Beyonce lost to Harry's house, when Beyonce lost to Adele. I'm sure we did a segment like this. It's galling because the artists themselves actually do care. You know, we can say who cares about the Grammys or whatever, but SZA cares. Miley cares. Beyonce goes. Why did she go? She. We like, know why she went this right. year. <laughs> but still, like it would be so easy to dismiss and say nobody cares about the Grammys. But clearly the artists do. Mm-hmm. One of the absolute highlights was the duet with Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman. Tracy Chapman sounded like butter. At exactly the same. Incredible. Just exactly the same. Effortless. It seemed like the crowd didn't quite know who was about to sing. To begin with, they just heard the guitar strumming. And then there was this moment where Tracy saw that the crowd realized that it was her. And then she got this big smile. Mm. She's a notoriously introverted person. Doesn't like the limelight. But that Mm. that was a a cute moment to see her have that moment. That was directed so well to have her in the dark and then have her revealed on camera. And for the audience, it was really like a goosebumps kind of moment. Joni Mitchell, I didn't know that she was going to be performing in-house. Oh, I, I thought you were going to say I didn't know that she had all those blackface pictures back in the day. Oh, every time. I, I know. I can't. I mean, there's no excuse. There's I, nothing I, to defend. I can't defend. make excuses for it. <laughs> there's I'm nothing not, to like, defend. <laughs> right. I hope you're not asking me to defend because I cannot and will not. Um, and now it's, well, it's hard now to say that I love Joni Mitchell in spite of those we all have horrible missteps. or things. Yeah. Uh, but to see Joni perform after having an aneurysm last year was her first return to live for performing. And it was really not not at this caliber. This was I was so surprised. Her voice was very powerful yes. considering. Who else? Dua Lipa opened. Dua has improved her performance a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Olivia Rodrigo. Love her. I know she's taking voice lessons. I mean, she must be. But I, we, we need a little bit more um, diaphragm support. I don't pay attention to new people. The pop girls? The you new don't know pop them? girls, yeah. I don't know them. I mean, I know that vampire song. And I knew it was her, I think. But I, I watched her perform and I was like, okay, there's nothing offensive about this. Cute little performance. Right. And then I saw her being slandered all over the internet <laughs> afterward. Like, people are she really, can't sing. Yeah. Y'all didn't know she can't sing. They're really mean to her. I mean, I've heard people who can't sing. Jennifer Lopez has performed on that stage many times. Like, this is not that. Like, she's right. not the best singer, but, like, it's not 
It's not the end of... It's not calamitous. Yeah. SZA's performance, like, her performance skills have improved so much. The way she uses her voice has changed. The lyricism in this album compared to Control, and I love Control. I think Control is a bona fide classic, but SOS is just on another level. She's such an innovator. Her influence, I don't think, is really understood yet, but she has changed music, and there's more coming. Now, I won't hope against hope that she'll win Album of the Year ever, but I'm just looking forward to more SZA. Hmm. Fantasia did a tribute to Tina Turner, Mm -hmm. and she had on the prerequisite outfit needed for Proud Mary or Rolling in the River, if you're (laughs) the Hollywood Hollywood reporter. (laughs) She leaves the stage and she goes into the audience and she says, I'm looking for a young lady who can dance or something like that to dance with me. And she goes over near Beyonce and Dua Lipa is there and they do a little, you know, body Mm -hmm. roll thing. And Beyonce is, you can see it on her face, she's like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Absolutely not, Absolutely girl. not. <laughs> if she's not getting paid, she's not dancing at this point. The Knowles-Carter family did leave immediately after Jay's speech. Can't blame them. There was a lineup on every commercial break to get a, a picture with Beyonce. I'd be annoyed too. Why do you think Mariah presented first? That was not an accident. She's not waiting around. Absolutely not. She got on that she, stage, she got off that stage, and she left the building. She did not stay. She she probably set up the catering at one of the after parties. A side note, we just finished watching the We Are the World documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. What is it called? Like The Greatest Night in Pop or something? Yes. It was, it was very good. Very entertaining. I had no idea what the actual production was like, that they did it the night of the American Music Awards and then went into like 7 a.m. in the morning and all these mega stars stayed through the night. To like 7 a.m. to finish this up. You have Stevie Wonder coaching Bob Dylan how he should be singing. <laughs> I felt bad for Bob. It was not his milieu, right? No, he's, clearly not. He's not a melismatic singer. He's not. And they asked him to do basically ad-lib on top of the chorus, like Bruce. And Bruce, oh my God, knocked it out of the park. And Bruce was so hot then. Like, I'm only now starting to realize Well, he has one of the was. most iconic and sexiest album covers well, ever. What is that, Born in the USA? Yes. It's Everyone the one with which... the jeans from the back with right. the hanky in the pocket. Not the hanky. Isn't there a hanky in the there pocket? Is, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he knew what he was if doing. If you know, with you that. know. <laughs> no, but highly, I'm sure everybody has watched it by now on Netflix. But I would highly recommend it. It's just amazing. Like these are superstars, right? I I always feel like on, and this is probably just nostalgia, but the Oscars and the Grammys these days, there is a lack of that kind of wattage, that kind of star power, and I think part of it is that. That was the first or second generation of the true innovators. Stevie Wonder, who'd been an artist since the early 60s, Ray Charles, the pre-rock and roll era. Like, these are originators. And what we're seeing now are great, amazing artists, but they don't have that that heft. You know? Well, now maybe we can have another song for Hunger. And now that Taylor Swift has four Album of the Year awards and Stevie only had three, maybe her and Jack Antonoff can get something done. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Jackie Wilson says this is a segue here to get into the questions 
Wasn't Serena's Grammy look stunning? It was. It was. And Jackie told me that apparently she was there to present Green Day with an award. At their request. Because Serena is a big Green Day fan. Their most famous fan, perhaps. Damien asks, Do you think friend Leibowitz is a little interesting or do you find her insufferable? Now, the only thing I know about this woman, and maybe this is a severe shortcoming on my part, is her interview with Ziwe. And it was not good. So, based on that, I say insufferable. I think this is a question directed more to me. I, uh, first of all, I loved Pretend It's a City, which is the documentary by Martin Scorsese, where he interviews his friend, Fran. Fran Leibowitz has been this figure that no longer exists, right? Kind of a cultural critic who just uh, comments on things. And that's really her only job. She wrote for Interview Magazine back when it was this trailblazing publication in the 70s. She's the kind of quintessential New Yorker, and she just writes about stuff. I remember Interview Magazine in the late 90s with Ryan Felipe on the cover. Of course that was That was something. Okay, but that's not really related. I understand. I know that Fran stepped in some hot water with the... Uh, the transphobia mm, accusation yeah. around 2010 where she was doing an interview for a documentary and she doubted uh, somebody, I think it was somebody in the Andy Warhol orbit in the factory and Fran doubted that this person was actually trans. And so she got a lot of flack for that. And later she kind of clarified and said, like, I don't, if somebody says that they are a gender, I believe them. And so I think I'm not excusing what Fran did. I just think that we need to set her apart from people like Martina Navratilova and J.K. Rowling, who've made it kind of a, a side hustle to be transphobic. Fran is not that. I think Fran is just a little bit out of touch. But I don't think she actually intends to, to hurt people. So that caveat being said, I, I'm a fan I like I enjoy Fran Leibowitz. When you when your career is offering takes, chances are a lot of those takes are going to be wrong. If you offer 10 million takes in your career, there's going to be some wrong ones. We got a couple questions about Ben Rothenberg's book on Naomi Osaka. Librarian Stitcher asks for our take on the new Osaka book. Sumit says, your thoughts on Naomi and Mari's father and his conduct? I haven't read Ben's book, but some excerpts have been floating around. And there was also the disturbing post Mari put up for a minute on Instagram. It seems like there should be more conversation on this. Before we get into this, full disclosure, we know Ben. Ben is a supporter, a big supporter of the show. He's donated to our campaigns repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, former frenemy, so now he's sending us the book. Uh, <laughs> that's the full disclosure. <laughs> I, I'm so slow. During the Australian Open, I stopped reading. I'm so sorry. I know I said I was I was currently reading the book. I didn't make much progress. But Ben is a, a very thorough reporter. The, what I've read so far, I've really enjoyed. The thing about Mario Saka's post, and it's possible that a lot of you did not see it or, or aren't aware of it, an account with her name. I don't even want to say it was definitely her because maybe it wasn't her, right? Her social media account posted a diatribe about her and Naomi's dad, accusing him of abuse. It was really difficult to read because it felt like you were getting 
you are seeing something about someone's family that you shouldn't be seeing, like you shouldn't be looking at. Mm-hmm. And it was deleted quickly. The account was deleted quickly. So we don't know right. if it was even her. If it was her, it was very disturbing. Yes. And it ended with a threat that if he ever stepped foot in that house again, that fill in the blank. Right. And so I, I hope for the Osaka family's sake that it wasn't real, that it wasn't true. I have no way of knowing. I was surprised that there was there was really no discussion about it at all. And I mean, that includes us. And I think it's for the reason I mentioned that it felt like, uh, A, it wasn't verifiable. And B, we were seeing something that we shouldn't be seeing. As it pertains to the book, this question. Oh, uh, you know... The bar for tennis parents is quite low, or high, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Leonard, uh, Naomi, and Mari's dad had a certainly had a dream for them, and he was clearly the boss in that family. Tamaki, their mom, had a job in the city. She was the one, I mean, making subsistence for the family, essentially. She was paying the bills. And one day, Leonard decided that he was moving the girls to Florida, and Tamaki just had to deal with it. And so it was clear that he made the decisions. Naomi even said when it came time to decide who, which country to represent, Japan, the country of her birth, or the United States, the country where she grew up, Leonard made the decision. She wasn't part of it. She even told reporters, ask my dad, I don't know, like I wasn't part of it. But I, I certainly, he seems like a domineering figure. Which is to say it's not something we can speak to with certainty. Right. As for the book, the book is incredibly detailed. I mean, Ben spoke to the very first person that Naomi ever played a tennis match against. <laughs> Track that lady down. It's If you've ever read tennis books, good tennis books, you know or you come to expect that you're going to get tidbits that are tangential, that are juicy, but not necessarily directly relevant to the sub- subject matter at hand. And we get those here. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're going to learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And we're also mentioned in the book. I just discovered that, that the other day. That was a surprise. <laughs> Look the, us up in the, the, the te- index. The, when, when Mario Saka retired from tennis, we did an episode with the title of her famous statement from that retirement post. Mm-hmm. And it's mentioned in the book. So, so, so thank you for that. We're in print somewhere. <laughs> If you're on the fence, I would say it's definitely worth your time buying the book, getting the book from a library. We have so few tennis books out there. And I feel like there's a lot about the Osakas that we don't know, despite her being so exposed. Mm -hmm. The one qualm that I had from when this book was even first announced was the the subheading. Right. That I was like, huh? What? Like finding her voice. Yeah. Yeah. And is... This white man going to help her find her, you know, is he best equipped? Um, I would say that whatever your feelings are about Ben, that shouldn't dissuade you from buying the book if you are interested. And even if you aren't necessarily interested in Osaka, there are lots of other things that you can learn from the book. And you can still read a book with a critical eye. I mean, we do that all the time, right? Like It's part of being an adult, right? (laughs) In a similar vein, Shola asks... What tennis player memoir would you run to the bookstore to get? One that hasn't been written yet. I don't know that there's anybody currently other than Ostapenko. Oh, I was going to say her too. That I would want to hear (laughs) their thoughts while they're currently a tennis player. Mm -hmm. Because I feel and I trust and I know that 
that book would be dynamite. There'd be a lot of <laughs> a lot of saucy, juicy bits. Oh yeah. If I were to go back and and read a book, or if I want a book from a tennis player, I want them while they're actually playing, while they're not too rich, while they're not too famous, where they don't feel like they can't say certain things. Mm-hmm. A book in the vein of Pam Shriver's Passing Shots, where stuff is going to be talked about. You know, I feel like <laughs> books aren't written like that anymore. No. Even no. Mandlikova's book that she wrote at the tail end of her career, she talked about stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what people want to hear. There's there's a tendency for it to be so pristine. Oh, of course. We talked about this recently, actually. Like, would I love to hear Venus's story from Venus? Of course. But, but definitely not the way that she's going to tell it right now. Exactly. Like, what book am I going to get from Venus now? I would I'd love to read a book by Dasha Kazatkina. I feel like she's a straight shooter. I think throughout her career, she will she will have lived a life that not many people have lived. So I'd love to read that. Do you know which book we're probably going to get soon? That Guy's. Probably going to get a book from that oh, guy God. talking about how much he's overcome. Oh, God. I'm sure there's a Curious book coming, too. <laughs> Tom Hogan asks, How is MC going to do an album rollout without, quote, Queen of Christmas getting in the way? <laughs> I think we've reached a very savvy stage of Mimi's career. I don't think she'd do an album rollout close to the fall or winter. Well, there's just too much work. Right. She couldn't. Who wants to work that much? <laughs> you know, late October into end of December. Well, Late October into mid-December when she embarks on her Aspen Christmas, that's blocked (laughs) off. Those dates are blocked and booked and busy. So it has to be a spring release. Right. And this year, we have been promised that MC16 is coming this year. Have we been promised? I I mean, she says she basically has a a whole album worth of songs. So... Well, I believe that. We've seen a ramping up of her public appearances recently. She's looking amazing and i i think that's that's what's going to happen in the next few months maybe a single in the spring there have been rumors about about it being a jazz album about it being a gospel album about it maybe being a duets album we'll see Hmm. mariah doesn't really follow trends even in sort of the later stages of her career she does work with big important producers but she does her own thing with them like she worked with Blood Orange, Dev Hines on Caution, and the results were fire. Oh, it was? You didn't you don't like that song. Don't sit here oh my God. and pretend like you wow. like that song. I don't even don't no, because do me it's like one that. of my favorite don't songs do me on that like album. That. I am gonna do you like that. The whole album was fire. It was. It just wasn't my favorite. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. And now you're gonna criticize me because the roof isn't my favorite song on Butterfly. It's not mine either. <laughs> you know we agree on this. <laughs> But I like The Roof more than you do. Mm. So to answer your question, Tom, it's going to be carefully curated. It's going to be planned out. Also, the album rollout for a Mariah record in 2024 is not the same amount of time as a butterfly or an emancipation. Right. Right. It's going to be, if it's, if it's anything like the caution rollout, it's going to be one month and then we're Quick done. Quick and dirty. Yeah. Uh, the, the music industry is so different. It's so weird these days because, like I said earlier, Taylor is one of the only people selling. Taylor and Adele are the only people who sell in those numbers. And 
it just feel like there are no main pop stars that you can rely on year to year aside from them. And at, at this point, Adele is like Sade. You ought to snow. That's a really good Twitter handle there. <laughs> says, have you all recorded yet? If not, who is a player every time you've seen a draw, you think, oh, wow, definitely thought they retired. And why is it Heather Watson? No, I don't know why Heather wow. Watson is here catching strays. <laughs> not Heather Watson. She's out here trying her ass off in qualifying of everything. <laughs> I do this a lot, but now I can't remember the people. It was Feliciano Lopez for oh. like four years. Well, it's these people who say that they're retiring and they never do. Leighton Hewitt was another one for years. I thought he had retired and then he just kept showing up places. Kevin Anderson did retire, mm-hmm. but now he's back or he was back. I see. I, I thought can't keep he track. was back. I, right. I'd forgotten he was back until he just said that. <laughs> right. Do you have any? I'm just in a headspace where people show up and they plan. I'm like, okay, because people retire and unretire so many times. Right. So that this this question doesn't hit the way it did when we first started the podcast, if that makes sense. Mm, mm-hmm. But the answer definitely would have been Feliciano Lopez. Yes, yes. And we think he's finally retired. Well, and there are a few like uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova... Fernando Verdasco, are they still playing? I know that Svetlana has not officially announced a retirement. I don't know about Verdasco, but I feel like he hasn't. Yelena Jankovic for years, remember? She had never officially retired from tennis, but it was clear that she was gone. I think the one person now for me would be Fonini. Ah, yes, yes. Tony Giovaniti asks, With climate change, do you think tennis will ever reconsider its schedule? It's a great question, and... It it hints at a larger problem, right? That we are all experiencing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but to think that tennis is going to willingly take money out of its pocket, the answer is no. No, he didn't say that. He said, will it modify its schedule? Now, we don't know about the implications to profit. What do you think that means? Less tennis, less money. Okay, or, or maybe you have a tour run by Saudi Arabia and the money is just flying in. Or you have a tour run by people who know how to attract better revenue streams and the money's coming in. Right. Like I I know you're it's an English, not a leading I know question. you're an English major. <laughs> so when the question is framed with climate change comma, mm-hmm. do you think tennis will ever reconsider its schedule? Meaning will tennis, because of the climate crisis, consider changing the way it operates business for the mm. betterment the of its schedules. players yeah the globe the world no that's my point yeah <laughs> there'll be nothing altruistic about this there'll be nothing tennis will not do anything on this scale that's not entirely self-serving that's what i'm thinking yeah and i think you just have to look at it in a pretty straightforward way like unless there is a profit motivator and this is true of all industries under capitalism tennis is not going to voluntarily change its schedule unless they stand to lose money now for such a conservative and uptight sport tennis has been open to some innovations recently uh, they of course they changed the the way we call lines They've introduced different types of tiebreakers across the slams. They've embraced technology in innovative ways. And I'm not saying that all of those innovations are good, but tennis has shown the capacity to change. 
But as far as the scheduling, I think as long as they think that this is the best bet for running a tennis tour, for generating revenue across the world, then this is what they're going to do until it's impossible to continue in this way. Vikesh asks, bit of a standard question, but who do you think will be the next first-time slam champ on the WTA and ATP? This is a question that we get pretty much every time we do a mailbag question. And probably rightly so, because every time we do, there's been a new slam champ (laughs) recently, especially on the women's side. And in thinking of answering this question, I was like, oh, maybe this person is like, oh, well, they actually have won one. (laughs) Ostapenko. Oh. Or, or uh, it's hard to say. I I have no idea how to answer this question or who to even put because I've learned my lesson. Right. I would say on the women's side... Mukhova maybe? Zhang or Mukhova wouldn't be bad options. I would say maybe on the men's. like On the men's it's harder because someone like Holger Huna... I'm not going to pick to break through in best of five. I'm just not. Until I see it happen, I'm not going to predict it. He can't get through best of three matches right now. Right. He's not well physically. He would be the obvious choice given proper fitness. Taylor Swift, no. No. Uh, A kind of out there pick. I've said Taylor Swift before. I've answered this question with Taylor Swift. Right. On the women's side, maybe, I don't know if this is an out out there choice, but maybe Lyndon Oskova. One of the Lindas, one of the surging youngsters could do it. And someone with her power might be able to, like, you know, swat through seven seven matches. It may just end up being that guy, sadly. Oh, God. On the men's side, on. on the men's side, he keeps getting to the back end of slams. One of these men is going to allow him to do it at some point. Well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, I guess. Now, if it were somebody who I want... To win a first slam, it would be Grigor, it would be Rublev, it would be Casper. I suppose one of the big bets for a lot of people would be Shelton. I think we're still a few years away from that being a realistic thing happening. Bob's your uncle. Adam asks, why do you think the ATP, Netflix, and co. keep protecting that guy? This is something we've thought a lot about, and... Uh, we've gone through, like, I don't get why they're investing so much, why they're protecting him. Is he that important to them? And I think I'm going to go with the Occam's razor route and say it's actually a lot more straightforward than we're making it. They This is the sunk cost fallacy. They've invested a lot of money in this person, a lot of time and attention in this person. And I think they continued to invest throughout his scandals. And at some point you realize, I've sunk so much into this person, I have to keep sinking into this person because I already paid so much, right? That's the sunk cost fallacy. Well, we learned that the Netflix thing was a pay-for-play situation. Yes. The ATP, on the other hand, that's just complete negligence and do not give a fuckness. I don't think that's... All it is. What have they invested in him? What has the ATP tour invested in him? Well, I don't know. I mean, they've made out that he's one of the next superstars for years. Right. Right. And That's been... in that time, he has not won a slam. There have been new stars that have come about. 
put those energies toward Carlos, toward Ben, toward Holger. There's any number of routes that you can go, but they still choose not to. Mm-hmm. It's because maybe they're afraid of his legal team. I think that's a very big well, part that's of also, it. That's also part of it, is that he has a powerful and very aggressive legal team, as we've seen. They're afraid. Anything they do, if they don't allow him to participate in something, they're afraid they're going to get sued. Even if the lawsuit has no merit, it's not like they want to be playing around with these legal things. It still takes up time. Mm -hmm. It takes up resources. It's bad PR. Right. When you have a player suing the organization. And so when you can just sit back and do nothing and only have your interns have to deal with the online stuff. With us. Right. Like, why, why do anything different? On a global scale, it's been child's play so far. It's what just been it, a bunch of us online. What would it take for them to really feel like who would have to do something or what would have to happen? Roger Federer. That won't happen. Rafa Nadal. He, they've already demonstrated that's not going to happen. I'm going to make a connection between that and traitors. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hogan asks, do you prefer the US or UK traitors? And between those two... I would say UK is better overall just because the celebrities aren't necessarily celebrities we know. I think I prefer the game played with people I don't know. It gives a completely different mm-hmm. feel to it. The second season of the US version is interesting to us because we know a couple of the celebrities from Housewives of Atlanta. Sheree, who is perpetually useless doesn't know anything that's going on, doesn't know the rules of the game. (laughs) And then there's Phaedra, who is a traitor, and she's giving your prototypical Phaedra tease on this this show. Phaedra is one of the biggest liars in the entire Housewives universe. She is made for this game. If she hadn't been made a traitor, it would have been a huge missed opportunity. Phaedra was forced off Atlanta because she created a whisper campaign accusing Candy Burris of drugging and raping people. Like, that's bad. That's really fucking bad. And now she's come back with the Housewives trip, girls trips or whatever. She's She's now on Married to Medicine. Mm -hmm. She's weaseling her way back in. I don't want anyone to forget why Phaedra left Atlanta. She's a bad person. The lies, the lies, the lies. (laughs) However, that bad person has been rather entertaining on Mm. Traders US. She's in a pickle because, I don't know if you saw this, we should have said if you plan on watching this show or these shows, there are going to be spoilers on this episode, so maybe maybe skip this bit. But apparently Burgalicious, no, not Burgalicious, oh, Burgalicious dropped this nugget that after the during the last episode, Pete... The Bachelor fingered Phaedra as a traitor based on Dan's accusations on her. Which, if we are a follower of the show, you know that that's a logical next step. Mm -hmm. But the producers didn't show us him doing that. And so the heat is going to be on Phaedra now based on that. So it'll be interesting to see how she, if she's able to weasel her way Mm -hmm. out of that. Traitors is a thing now. It's huge. I only just discovered that there are several non-English-speaking traitor seasons. Multiple. (laughs) 
There's Netherlands, there's France, there's uh, Spain. <laughs> I think it didn't it originate in the Netherlands? I think so. Yeah. And I've watched all of the English speaking ones now. I just finished season one of Australia, which was the last one that I had to watch. I've watched New Zealand, I've watched both US and UK, US still ongoing, and we watched Australia season two together, which was wild. Oh. Those are some of the stupidest people that have ever lived oh. on this planet. Hannah from Below Deck Med, who was the chief stew for five seasons. Not great. But the thing is, on Traders, you can survive as a faithful for a long time if people think you're not a threat. If you are continually wrong. If you are a useful idiot. Exactly. And that was Hannah. On well, that, it was Hannah until... Finally. And then she was immediately evicted. <laughs> oh, you can't say the M word. <laughs> but where I'm tying this back to whiteness and maleness and protecting people and believing people with that guy, Zverev, and the traitors, season two of Australia, season two of UK, Harry, mm-hmm. and that what was that other guy's Paul. name? Paul. Harry and Paul. Crazy. Like, Paul would show up and... Everybody has seen murder after murder after murder after murder, and there is no other logical conclusion than it is Paul. It is Paul, it is Paul, it is Paul. They form a plan, they have the votes, they go to the round table, somebody leads the discussion and says, Well, these are the reasons why. Da, 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 da. And Paul simply turns his head and says, Well, I just find it interesting that you haven't said much this entire time, and now you're saying this. I think you are the traitor. And then everybody's like, oh. and everything disappears. Everybody's right? like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. <laughs> and without fail, they all turn on each other and Paul right. skirts by. And that, that is the white maleness working right there. That is the only explanation for me. That's a, well, the reason you say that, and we've talked about it, is that's a trend across all of the, the trader franchises that we've seen in the English-speaking countries, including Canada. You forgot Canada. We watched season yes, one. Yes, yeah. Well, except for Australia season one. That oh, was okay. one of the best well, seasons I've one. seen so far. But in Australia season two, and again, there are spoilers here, Sam, who called himself the sheriff the whole time. Logged- That's who I meant. That's oh. who I meant. You had me saying Paul this whole time. No, but Paul from UK, the redhead. Well, I meant but Harry. Same thing. I was talking about Harry on UK and, and Sam. Sam from Australia. Yeah. They're charismatic, young, good-looking white men. And it seemed that every time they made an argument, no matter how strong or how weak, everyone crumbled. Everyone said, oh, well, if if Sam said it, it has to be true. I trust him implicitly. Bergalicious, like, he's what, so sweet. Bergalicious is so amazing. And, I, you know, I'm not a social psychologist or anything. I'm not trying to be, but God, you can see this trend of if there is a charismatic, popular white guy as a traitor, they can get people to do almost anything because we are conditioned to trust those people. They have gravitas because of who they are. That they should be entitled to space. They should be entitled to have their thoughts taken seriously. It's it's a wild like, social experiment. I know it's a reality show, but it's, I, but it's infuriating. <laughs> yes. That Sam season on Australia season two, I screamed at the TV so many we times. We both I cussed a blue streak 
Uh, but it, please stay for the end. Please, please, I beg you, don't give up on the season. If anybody has seasons of Netherlands or Spain or what have you with English subtitles, please send me a link because <laughs> that's what I need to be doing next. <laughs> All right, we were talking about uh, misogyny. Let's segue into this question from Trixie Belden, a.k.a. Sharon H. on Twitter. Okay, gonna go there on this chestnut, and I know it's been done to death, but what about women playing four sets with a fifth set match tiebreaker at slams? Actually, I don't think this part has been done to death. I think you're introducing something new here. Yeah. Right? I'm, people just say either best of five or best of three. They right, don't really right. posit this as an option. And she says best of three can be over in a blink and nerves can play a part. Would love to see more opportunity to reset within a match. You don't have to convince me. I, I'm with you. I don't know if I'm with you on the fifth set, like match tiebreak, because I think it'll be used as an excuse to say, well, they're still not putting the requisite hours on court. It's still not equal. I think if you're going that far, you might as well just play a fifth set, right? It's not that women by design cannot play five sets or run a marathon or, you know, do those things. It's that they've not been afforded the opportunity. Now, I don't see it happening because Grand Slam scheduling will not allow it to happen. They'll add days, you know, to, to finish round one or whatever. Still got people playing till three in the morning. I don't see them changing the way they approach scheduling uh, fundamentally. But women can play five sets. Right. They're going to tell us that they can't do it because of physical limitations. But the rub here is that they will never agree to it. Right. Men's tennis has to be featured at all costs. I can't recall a tournament with as many five-set matches on the men's side as I did in Australia. And part of the reason for that is, and this dovetails into another question from Tennis in the Park, or is it Tennis in the Par 1? Yeah, but Tennis yeah. in the Park. They said, after Sampras and his serve, court speeds were slowed. With slower court speeds, we had a nice golden era. But then we saw more players resort to a pusher game style, not trying for winners. Would quickening court speeds help offensive tennis or bring back the 90s problems? It's not just the court speeds. Andy Roddick said it recently that it has to do with the strings as well. It's court mm. speeds and strings. Tennis is just a different game. It's And the way the men play, it's not just the slower courts. It's not just the strings. It's the style of play that men play as well. They push. Right, but the, the, the premise is it here, the conditions? Yeah, that... the premise here is that they push because of the conditions. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that's one of the contributing factors. Well, the strings are totally different. They make it much easier to hit accurately, as you know, and to generate power more easily. So you have players that hit quite a bit harder than the the power hitters of the past, just because they have different equipment, but they're not considered the power hitters of today. I think like the late 90s, early 2000s is not really a period we want to go back to in men's tennis. At the same time, it was a golden age of women's tennis. Serve botting in men's tennis sucks, but big babe tennis in women's tennis is awesome. I can't explain it. It's just a universal truth. I think it's more likely that men will play best of three 
then women will play best of five. Mm. Yeah. There's just only so much time allotted for both 128-player draws in a slam, for both draws to be playing five sets. Uh, so it's I don't I just don't see that logistically happening. Yeah, I think there's been much more noise on the side of shortening the format than elongating the format on the women's side. And as much as fans and uh, equal pay detractors <laughs> might like to see women play five sets, the people who actually run tennis do not. There is no popular movement toward that from within the sport. I think quickening the courts is fine. You still have clay courts. You still have grass as a differentiating surface. I think it'll play most notably on hard courts. And people return differently than they did in mm -hmm. the 90s. Mm -hmm. Medvedev, Rafa, you know, there, there's ways to mitigate the big serve. It's just a matter of whether you have one player who is so good in all aspects of their game with the goat serve. Right. You know, like, you, can you, should you really change an entire sport in the way it's played because of one player? I would just like to see a continuation of variety in court speeds, as long as we can keep that. Damien asks, if you could have dinner with three or five tennis players or figures, coaches, designers, etc., past or present, who would it be? I feel like the designer part was put there for one specific purpose and i'm going to take the bait because it would be ted tin tinling for me mm -hmm. and i feel like i've answered this question in the past and he's been there i want people who cross generations who are who are able to speak and spill the tea about as many people as possible and he's one of them i would like maybe gladys heldman yeah i feel like she'd have a lot of stories to tell and then i would go with Arancha Sanchez Vicario, because I want to know what's going on right now. And I want to know historically what has gone on. And I'd like to know okay. what went on with her and Yana. I would like to know a lot of things about my formative years in tennis. Okay. I haven't thought a lot about this question. I know I've answered it before. Ted Tinling has been on my list before. You can't use uh, mine. But I would give. definitely say Bud Collins. Suzanne would be on my list. Helen Jacobs, definitely, because you need you need some queers on the list. Mm. I, I mean, we know we know the tea, we know how to gossip. You need gays at this party. A few others I might add, probably Hanna Mandlikova in 1981. Okay. I would like to talk to Pam Shriver. I would like to speak with Gloria, Jimmy Connor's mom. Oh. Not Jimmy. But Gloria. Okay. Jewel asks, have tennis kits gotten demonstrably worse in recent years, or is it just me? Is there a greatest era for tennis fashion, or is it just player by player? <laughs> I think on the whole, they've gotten less creative, less daring, unless you're with a smaller brand. Nike and Adidas aren't really doing anything super interesting. I mean, a lot of times they don't even fit. Some, some of the Nike and Adidas kits are super nice if they're actually cut well for the person wearing them. But the best era in tennis kits is probably the 70s. You had Ted designing all these outfits at the start of the Women's Tennis Association. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. Outside of that, recently, Serena and Venus, when they unveil their kit, 
when Serena yeah. takes off the cloak after the warm-up, when Venus shows what the latest 11 design is. Naomi has that, on a much smaller scale, element to her kits and the reveals right now, but nobody else really, except for Ostapenko. And maybe Francis. Well, no, but even then, those players wear something bold, maybe, but it's the same silhouette. Yeah, it's not a custom. It's not. Back in the day, you ha- I just feel like you had more brands. You had Takini, you had Puma. I do love what LS does occasionally in tennis. What they did in tennis back in the day, too. Yeah, yeah. Something we didn't talk much about on the Manlika on the Manlikova episode was the LS kits. Yes. The the early 80s were also a great time. Kvidikat asks, Ostapenko, colon, cult hero or pantomime villain? Or both? <laughs> I think you know the answer to this. Yeah, I love this question because it is so British. Americans do not know what a panto villain is. But we get it from context clues. Yelena is everything. She contains multitudes. She is sometimes outrageous and wrong and mean but she just brings too much to tennis to to deny her and lately it's been a lot of wins she's made the final or won the singles or doubles at every event she's played this year yeah two singles titles already on the year and she's only lost to one person in singles vika azarenka twice that's it i said on twitter that we would talk about this andy murray stuff and now i sort of regret it because I feel like everybody has talked about it, and I'm kind of tired. <laughs> the BBC published a column with the headline, Andy Murray, colon, is the end nigh for three-time Grand Slam winner after latest loss. And then the writer uh, promoting the story tweeted, So when should at Andy Murray call time on his extraordinary career? Adding Andy Murray, rude, but it is uh, how it's done, generally. In the article, he's quoted as writing, when does the pride of a champion and the refusal to back down from a challenge do more harm than good? When does it become clear that the massive investment of time, energy, and effort is not paying any kind of dividend at all? The writer goes on to throw in, quote, safeguarding his own mental health must surely come into play alongside preserving his reputation. No, this, the, 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 this is the part that really pisses me off every time. The mm. preserving their reputation. As if somehow playing beyond your best years is going to erase everything else that's come before. What this is, is that you as a tennis fan don't like it. You don't want to see it. You don't want to see it. You don't like it. You only want to support winners. These players are playing for themselves. <laughs> they should do yeah. whatever the hell they feel like doing. What? Actually, what really annoyed me was barely a phrase, barely a clause about safeguarding his own mental health must surely come into play. Why why would you throw that in there? It wasn't even given its own sentence. I mean, let's just not... Can we stop pretending this is about his mental health? I feel like that was added in so the column would be more digestible. It was about clicks. You added Andy Moore, you tagged him. In promoting these, this story. And you got him. You got the engagement <laughs> that you wanted. And so Andy claps back and says, Tarnishing my legacy? Do me a favor. I'm in a terrible moment right now. I'll give you that. Most people would quit and give up in my situation right now. But I'm not most people. And my mind works differently. I won't quit. 
I will keep fighting and working to produce the performances I know I'm capable of. Now, what I wish Andy would have said was, it's none of your business. It's none of your damn business. I will play as long as I feel, as long as I damn well please. But the key thing here is that I'm not most people and my mind works differently. And that's, that's it. Athletes who have seen greatness, they're not like us. Their mind does work differently. They experience the high that none of us will ever experience. You have to be deluded to achieve at that level. But if you are still making the grade, you're still a top 100 player, you can still play the game, people are still giving you wild cards, why would you not play? The last if two you results have been horrific, Yeah, frankly. Now, am I watching any matches? Probably not, but there, that doesn't there matter. There were two matches in the span of a few weeks. Tennis is played over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. People have ups and downs, ebbs and flows. His last year wasn't good for him either. I mean, it's it's been an extended spell, sure. granted. But Same with Venus, right? And you sure. never tolerate somebody Don't. telling Venus she should retire. But none of those results is going to take away 2016. It's not going to take away the two Wimbledon titles. It's not going to take away the two Olympic gold medals. It's not going to take away number one. It's not going to take away what he did in that era. Leave the man be. Yeah, it's really that simple. People write these columns because they need something to write, because people will read them, Andy engaged with it. But honestly, who cares? How does it impact us if Andy wants to continue playing? That brings us to the end of this mailbag episode. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. Everything BodyServe related can be found at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Send your addresses to thebodyserve at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter, what have you. However you can get a hold of us, do it. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.